Welcome to the first ever episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, put out by Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible Software. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Ward, except I'm not that kind of useful doctor who can prescribe medicines. I'm the kind of doctor that my kids still don't believe like actually counts as a real doctor. I am a teacher, a teacher of the Bible. And that's a big reason why during this first season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, we are going to talk about biblical literacy. I and my many guests, some of whose names you will know, will talk about how to achieve and promote this elusive thing, biblical literacy. And I just want to say this is not a nine to five for me or for my guests. We actually pray for and work in many ways to promote biblical literacy in the church. This podcast is one of those efforts. We pray it will be helpful to you. For our very first episode, we lined up Dr. Kevin J. Van Hooser to talk generally about the problem of biblical illiteracy. He offers some real wisdom on the nature of the problem and the threats we're up against as we try to find solutions that will lead us toward knowing and living out the message of our Bibles. A little warning, we get a bit more academic in this episode than we will in others. I had some nerdy questions that I have been wanting to ask Dr. Van Hooser for a long time. You might need to go find your thinking cap. It's uh, probably by the door. If you do, however, I think you will be rewarded by our guest. Following the interview, I will talk that interview over with a cast of local characters from Faith Life who I think will have some additional insight to share. Listen in. The Bible Study Magazine podcast is brought to you by Bible Study Magazine, delivering tools and methods for Bible study from respected scholars and church leaders. Right now, start a free trial. Get six months of fresh insights on achieving greater Bible literacy. Visit BibleStudyMagazine.com slash trial today. Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, I'm very pleased to have you on the Bible Study Magazine podcast because I've just been reading your new Lexham Press book, Hearers and Doers, A Pastor's Guide to Making Disciples Through Scripture and Doctrine, and I am really enjoying it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Ah, thank you. It's good to be here, and any fan of my book is a friend of mine. <laughs> I feel the same way as a writer. Both of the fans of my book are friends of mine. <laughs> In what role do you currently serve the body of Christ? Ah, let me let me count the ways. Uh, most of them, I suppose, are indirect. My primary role is I teach systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I I do think of it as serving the body of Christ. I'm training future pastors, missionaries, counselors, chaplains, and so forth, and I'm supervising doctoral students, some of whom will them become pastors and others will become teachers and authors really all over the world. I also preach from time to time. I'm also the theological, a theological mentor at the Center for Pastor Theologians. And hopefully you'll count writing books that edify the church as part of service to the body of Christ. I certainly do. And those books are a lasting influence, a part of Christ's gift to his church of teachers that goes beyond uh, our lifetimes. And Lord willing, even our little discussion for the Bible Study Magazine podcast will be a benefit to people we would never even conceive of existing. Indeed. So I, I want listeners to know that this podcast is not about promoting individual books per se, but your book so clearly dovetails with our theme for the first season, that is biblical literacy, that I'm going to take it as my point of departure for the questions I have for you. Uh, we want to talk in this first season of the podcast about not only how to achieve biblical literacy, but how to promote it. And in this first episode, actually, this is the maiden voyage of the podcast. We want to take the 30,000 foot view of the topic of biblical literacy. Now, a repeated theme in your book, Dr. Van Hooser, and actually in your other work that I've read over the years, is that Christian people in the West are very sadly not shaped by the Bible's big story in the way they ought to be. They've let other big stories shape their imagination. 
And I, I personally was profoundly helped by reading Alastair McIntyre's book, After mm -hmm. Virtue. And I, I find it interesting that I've heard you several times, I think, quote this line that we can't answer the question, what ought we to do until we've answered the prior question of which story are we a part? So for those who are seeking to be biblically literate, of what story are we a part, Dr. Van Hooser? Yeah, that's a great question. And I heartily affirm your theme for this first season, biblical literacy, because I think we're in the midst of a crisis over biblical literacy. And this has been confirmed by many people that I've talked to over the years, even in the past, say, 20 years since I've been teaching. Uh, I think I see signs of a growing, spreading biblical illiteracy out there. But you asked me, um, for those who want to be biblically literate, of what story are we a part? And uh, I, obviously we're speaking about the grand story of the Bible, but we need to say more because you know, people in the West, Christians in the West, they have a place for God. They think that God is part of their story, <laughs> but I think they've reversed the theological polarities. And I, I link this with biblical literacy because as the church historian Grant Wacker uh, said, uh, sometime in the late 19th century or early 20th century, people, lay people's attitude and stance towards the Bible shifted. They were still reading it, but it was no longer the book, the story by which they oriented their lives. And I feel that people have the same attitude towards God as well. They may talk of God, and they may even think of God as part of their story. At crucial times, they may pray to God and God is part of their story, but they're still the heroes of their own stories. And uh, biblical literacy, I think, corrects that wrong way of thinking. It's not that God is part of our story, but that we are part of God's. And I think we need to re uh, recover biblical literacy. We need to recover the logic of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we ought to be praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, not for our will to sway heaven so that it can be done on earth. That's a very different story of the God-humanity relationship. We're part of the grand story of the Bible that unifies the Old and New Testaments, starts at creation with the beginning of all things, but it it's very quickly becomes apparent in the story that creation is a kind of workshop in which God is forming a human people to be his treasured possession. And this is a prominent theme in the Old Testament, uh, beginning with God's promise to Abraham to make his name great and to make of his descendants a great nation. Uh, that promise generates the rest of the story, I think. God is, you know, we're part of a story where the theme is God is relating to human beings in order to make a people for himself, to enjoy life with him forever. Your, uh, your work repeatedly hits these themes and so effectively. And your, your chapter two in Hearers and Doers, I found profoundly helpful. It's one of those chapters that you read and find it drawing together threads that you've started to follow and didn't really see how they all came together. You did it for me. You talked about the way our culture pushes a big story of health and wellness, of diet and fitness. Yes. Um, and that really captures our imaginations and does what the Bible opposes, and that is makes us the center of our own story. Exactly. You know, one of the most fundamental things you're saying here, is, seems to me, is that we've got to have a switch. David Foster Wallace, in a talk he gave, a famous commencement speech, says that we are all the profoundly selfish. We, we are the center of our own stories. And the Bible is absolutely denying that and yes. saying you are part of God's story. Yes. You know, you, you said, Dr. Van Hooser, um, in part of your answer, that you see many signs of biblical illiteracy. Uh, you gave a few. The biggest one, people just aren't organizing their lives by this big story, That's even right. if they're in the church. What, what are some of the other signs that you see from your vantage point? Of illiteracy. Well, at one level, I was simply thinking about people don't know the content of the Bible. Uh, it's harder to make references to the Bible. 
uh, and expect people to catch them. You know, you have to sort of fill in the blanks. So they don't know the the particular um, famous bits of the story. They also don't know how it connects. Uh, there are pastors just this past year who've suggested that the Old Testament is, isn't necessary for the Christian church. Uh, that, that's gross negligence of biblical literacy, I think. Uh, but, but the one that you mentioned, the fact that people simply aren't orienting their lives biblically, that to me is the biggest sign of the most important kind of illiteracy we need to uh, work against. Yeah, I've recently been discouraged, to be honest, personally. Um, I'll reach out here to uh, an older and wiser man in the faith, maybe for some help. I, I've, I've seen the ways that people talk online who I know were raised in church and in church communities who really did honor the Bible, people who went to Christian colleges for four years and took Bible classes and went on mission trips. And yet their imaginations have been captured. In this case, I, I've just been experiencing this by multi-level marketing schemes for uh -huh. medically questionable products or for essential oils that supposedly give them courage or for more apparently innocuous fitness crazes. And I mentioned that second chapter of yours um, on the secular stories of health and wellness. And I just felt it was a must read. I actually sent it to two really thoughtful uh, Christian female writers that I know, hoping that it'll spark some more writing from them. Mm -hmm. uh, you said in your book, I think in that chapter, that the best way for pastors to take every thought captive to obey Christ, referencing 2 Corinthians 10, is first to wake up their churches to the peculiar powers and principalities of contemporary culture by exposing the pictures and stories that capture our imaginations and program our lives, and second, to set out the more glorious truth of the gospel, thus redeeming the imagination and reorienting disciples so that they can walk in the truth. Now, you've said you teach future pastors and you speak at churches, so encourage me, Dr. Van Hooser, tell me that what you describe even if there are many people who are biblically illiterate, tell me that what you're describing does actually happen in the world, that the Bible really does shape many people's lives, as I have to humbly say, it has mine and my wife's. Yes. Um, so there are signs. I, I, I wish it was happening more, but we can pray for that. But there are encouraging signs. I think people are more aware of the role of the imagination, and I think people are more aware of the power of culture. I, I do think it is helpful to begin just alerting people to how formative the stories culture tells can be. Uh, and when I first came to Trinity, culture was something that, you know, only missionaries studied, you know, it was something over there. Now, I think we all realize that we're enculturated and that there are these deep stories that inform what Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary. So we're, we're wrapped up in stories. And uh, Charles Taylor suggests that being secular and modern, and we all are to some extent, but, that, but he suggests that modernity tells a kind of story of liberation from the authority and tradition of the Dark Ages, you know, the medieval church Christian tradition. And I think a lot of people are captivated by that particular story of freedom. But uh, now I need to encourage you. I think the Bible has the power to liberate people from illusions and lies and falsehoods. And that's because the light shines through God's word. And uh, we see the power of the true story as early as the New Testament when Jesus tells parables and those were also intended, I think, to subvert false gospels and to liberate captive imaginations. So I, I do see more and more students today, not just students, but people in general, having a healthy regard for the imagination, looking perhaps to the arts as well to give us some semblance of transcendence that, uh, for which people are starving in a modern secular age. And just this week, I had the privilege of speaking to 300 Evangelical Free Church of America pastors about the book, Hearers and Doers, and I was very encouraged to see how many of them are alert to the spiritually formative power of culture and stories, 
And I was encouraged to hear how they had many stories of how preaching the gospel is, is, results in waking people up. I have to say that as you're speaking, I, my mind goes right back to my childhood. I was raised in King James-only circles, and I've my most mm. recent book was a gentle and gracious, I hope, a, attempt to reach out to the lovely, godly people that shaped me back then. One of their weaknesses, if I may humbly say so, in an experience that was still largely positive for me, gave me a real faith and trust in the Bible and in its power. One of their weaknesses was they didn't tend to see the the positive um, capacity of culture to shape me, you know, the arts we weren't very interested in. Uh, we had some interest, but um, that was really fuzzy to me. But one thing that I, I've n- never been able to be anything less than fantastically grateful for is the backbone that they gave me back then. And this fundamental uh, appreciation of what Van Til would call the antithesis. The world out there is dangerous. The culture yes. out there is trying to shape you. Yes. And I, I've never, uh, I've never jettisoned that. Always felt that that fundamental insight was probably what that fundamentalist community is best contributing to the church. And I'm reading things like you're saying in this book and saying, you know, I really was told that in 1987, way back in my King James only church. I'm, I'm glad to see that emphasis come up. Now, Dr. Van Hooser, I have a long and academic question, and I, I really feel apologetic both to you for the length of this question, but I have to ask it because I've been wanting to ask you this question for so long. And I'm also apologetic to our listeners because this podcast is not intended to be quite as academic as it's going to be today. We want to be academically responsible, but we want to reach out to people who are seeking and not just promoting biblical literacy. But here it is. Okay. Uh, um, I'm a Skagit. County, I am Skagit County, Washington's foremost redheaded conservative evangelical expert on the work of postmodern literary theorist Stanley Fish. Uh, I wrote a paper and published it on him that basically explained the ties between his thought and that of uh, Vantillian presuppositionalism. Mm. And he's he's a Milton scholar of all things, you know this, which means he's really deeply acquainted with Augustinian Christian theology. And his breakout book was, Is There a Text in This Class? The Authority of Interpretive Communities. Your book title, Is There a Meaning in This Text? The Morality of Literary Knowledge, is, I think, an homage to Fish. And I, I actually wanted to ask you about your respective subtitles. Fish, whose subtitle is The Authority of Interpretive Communities, he's saying that the rules and assumptions guiding our interpretation of texts, including the Bible, are generated by whatever group we happen to identify with. So, even if a text does have meaning, there's no God's eye view of that meaning that we are that we have access to. You know, we're, we're stuck inside these interpretive communities. So this is obviously a postmodern approach to reading, though I actually think evangelicals have been too quick to dismiss Fish as a complete relativist, but that's another story for another day. Uh, your subtitle emphasizes that readers have a moral responsibility to understand the text that they read, no matter what interpretive community that they find themselves in. So here finally is my question. Am I morally obligated to interpret the Bible correctly? In, in other words, to, to borrow from a book title I hope to use, and I just have to ask you nicely not to steal, will Will Jesus say to me on the last day, have you not read? Mm. Well, good question. And thank you for catching the allusion in my title to Stanley Fish. You're right about that. Uh, his theory about the authority of interpretive communities, along with Derrida's deconstruction, those two men were indeed uh, the main conversation partners in my book because each, in his own way, seemed to drain away the authority of the text and uh, drain away the confidence of the reader to discern the text's meaning. And so there's no greater challenge to reading the Bible as the Word of God than to take away its authority, meaning, and power. But I do agree with you. I think both Derrida and Fish are worth wrestling with. They they have something that they see that's valuable. And I, I had to work hard to make sure I got them each right, that I understood them. So, and I, I, I don't think we can wave away their concerns with our wand or dismiss them with a throwaway phrase like relativist. Um, if it had been that easy, I wouldn't have needed to write a 500-page book. So, but uh, to answer your question, 
am I morally obligated to interpret the Bible correctly? What I tried to do in that book was turn the tables on the postmoderns, the more radical postmoderns, because many of them were champions of the marginalized other. Uh, they argued that people in power instituted structures that made the rich get richer and kept those in power in their privileged places. And again, there's some truth to that concern. But what's happened in fields where texts are interpreted, not only the Bible, but, but fiction too, is that debates about interpretation became less about what the author is saying than whose interpretive interests are being served in this by this way of reading. And again, my concern as a theologian is that biblical authority just goes up in smoke if interpretation simply becomes a matter of one's own interpretive community's interests. So what I try to argue is that the author is an other. And in postmodernity, the author is a marginalized other. And so I was making the case that readers have to struggle with all their might uh, to get the author right in order to do justice to this particular other. Because the author is no longer here to speak for himself. So I did argue that we have a moral obligation to do justice to authors. I argued that uh, this is for Christians, part of one of the, you know, the Ten Commandments, do not bear false witness. And then I also connected it to the New Testament because I think it's, I think it's the hermeneutical equivalent of the golden rule. Uh, do unto other authors as you would have other authors do unto you. I want to stop for a moment and recommend to you a book we've been talking about on this podcast. Kevin Van Hooser's Hearers and Doers, A Pastor's Guide to Making Disciples Through Scripture and Doctrine. When I googled the title of this book the other day, the first hit was the book, and the second was James 1.22, Be Doers of the Word and Not Hearers Only. The book is trying to further that very mission the Apostle James gives us. I came to this book myself hoping that I'd get some of Van Hooser's classic cleverness, I was not disappointed, along with, more importantly, some insight into actually helping people I teach the Bible to in my own church, and frankly, helping myself. I got what I came for. For me, it was particularly helpful to hear Dr. Van Hooser do some tearing down before he did some building up. He talked in very insightful detail about some of the key ways our culture is trying to shape us all, quite literally in the case of his second chapter, which describes the ways health and wellness culture tries to replace a biblical vision of the good life. Van Hooser says, culture forms us not only by making explicit claims or value judgments, but also subconsciously, for example, by creating pictures of the good life and conditioning us to think these pictures are normal. Van Hooser goes on to offer positive, constructive advice for how to use the Bible to form disciples. For me though, chapter two, whose fitness, which body image, was worth the price of the book. And no snarky comments, please, on what that means, considering that I work for Luxem and therefore got the book for free. I do think that you should get and read this book. Check out Hearers and Doers at LuxemPress.com or wherever fine Van Hooser books are sold. Think, I, I just love theological jujitsu, where you, you take the strike that's coming at you and you use the weight of your opponent to throw him down on the mat. And you did that so effectively. Nice. That was really helpful for me. I mean, okay. I, I was in a very conservative community. I, mean, I still am a very conservative Christian. And yet the, the postmodern acid was reaching me, even in the mm. days before social media. And now mm. in particular, you can't not know that for every major question, there are a thousand voices and 2,000 opinions. And, yes. and it's easy to retreat into a privatized religion in which maybe I am my own interpretive community. Right. And you can't, now you can't question me and how I interpret this text. But then again, I can't question you either. And mm -hmm. it, it is as if God is taken out of the equation. I love that, that 
you're seeing that in this case, God is being marginalized. It's Romans 1.18. People are suppressing the truth about him as eternal power and divine nature. Yes. And here, his speech, the truth that they can't not know. Okay, so this is this really is practical. This is for the social media age. And I want to drill down into this question even a little more, um, because one of the things I think must discourage beginning Bible readers who are looking to achieve biblical literacy uh, is their awareness— most likely mediated through the internet, that there are multiple diverging viewpoints on whatever the Bible teaches. And you said in your book, I'll quote you here, one of the great challenges of making disciples today is this skepticism about institutions and about knowledge claims in general. And I could add, you know, including what the Bible says. Right. Uh, so you say, many churches believe and behave in different ways, yet they all claim to be following Jesus. Which path should a would-be disciple follow? So this is what I'd like to ask you. How can a Christian, uh, beginning out in their uh, Bible literacy uh, journey, how can they find the right Christian tradition, the right interpretive community to help them read their Bible rightly? Or would you even frame that question differently? Uh, I think you framed it very well. You've put, you've put just put your finger on one of the most pressing and lingering challenges for Protestants and which has become acute in our postmodern era. And it, it is connected to biblical literacy as well, because if you let what the surrounding culture is suggesting you to you really seep in, if, if everybody reads the Bible in a, in a way that is correct in his or her own eyes, it really does uh, kind of take the wind out of your sails of interpretation, right? It's almost you know, ends up with people being skeptic or even cynical about the very possibility of getting it right. So I think you've put your finger on a very important question. Um, and I know we're not supposed to uh, hawk books here, but, you know, I did try to answer... Biblical authority after Babel. I'm halfway yeah, into that, that one, that's too. That's right. Please, uh, please. For the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I was hearing people kind of dismiss the Reformation as is what was responsible for opening up this Pandora's box, you know, of 10,000 possible interpretations. Because once you cut the tie to an authoritative institution, Rome, then who is to say whose reading is right or even better? So uh, very, very uh, briefly, there's um, maybe three things I'd like to say. First of all, I don't think we should demonize other traditions. I think I've come to appreciate that people in traditions other than my own may have people with the same amount of a technical term as epistemic conscientiousness, that is the same passion and determination to get it right as I do. So I, I think that really is just a condition of intelligent and fair conversation about the Bible. We have to acknowledge that there are others in other traditions who are trying just as hard as we are. But that doesn't answer your question. <laughs> in fact, it might even make it more difficult. And I'm not trying to relativize uh, things. I am trying to say that for many people who are unchurched or who haven't had the advantage of growing up in a tradition, I would say that it's better just to, to choose one tradition, one of the great you know, Protestant traditions, and be nurtured in that. I think of I think of interpretive traditions, the ones with staying power, you know, uh, the Reformed tradition, the Baptist tradition, the Methodist tradition, and so on. I, th I think of traditions as homes, uh, the interpreter's house, as it were. And it's better to be nurtured in a home and to learn how other people in your home have read than to try to do it all by yourself on the street. <laughs> The other thing I would suggest is this. There, there are different interpretive traditions, but another exercise I tried in 2017, again, remembering the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, was to see if we could come up with a confessional statement that Protestants from various traditions could agree on. Uh, I tried to drill down to what in the book I called mere Protestant Christianity and actually spent some time on this. And with 15 other people from different traditions, that is 15 different traditions, we came up with a statement called the Reforming Catholic Confession. 
So we were trying to confess what all Protestants can affirm, the doctrines of first order importance. And I was pleasantly surprised to see the consensus we were able to make. Now, what I'm saying then is that acknowledge that others are trying hard, acknowledge that there are other traditions, and it's better to be in a tradition rather than no tradition. And then when it comes to differences, keep the discussion going, but remember that there is a Catholic core. This is a small C, Catholic. That is a, there's a universal or mere Protestant core. And I would just say, focus on that as a reader. Make sure you're reading uh, with the majority of the cloud of witnesses that have, have come before us. Yeah, I, I specifically recall being a child and thinking as I got interested in the Bible and interested in getting it right, you know, maybe I was 10, uh, I remember thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great if I could go back in time and be given the ability to read, but live on a desert island where I have just my Bible and no interpretive traditions, I wouldn't have known that phrase, but to guide me or really constrain me. I just want to know what the Bible says without the taint of other, other people's opinions. Yes. I'm sure I could get it right. And what I came to see over time, particularly helped by a fellow graduate of my alma mater, Moises Silva, whom I know you know personally. I do. Um, he argued, you can't set aside all your pre suppositions that come from your interpretive community, your tradition. So don't try. Mm -hmm. Try to keep them self-consciously in the front of your mind. And yes, bring them up for evaluation as you read the text. And you may find over time that you need to change your opinions on things, have them conformed more in the semper reformanda spirit of the Reformation to yes. the sole authority, the ultimate authority that we have, which is the, the Word of God. And I found that to be so much more healthy, and, and it's actually pastorally more healthy because when somebody comes to me and says, you know, um, I don't know what to do with all these opinions on the internet, my first question is, what church do you go to? Yes. Unless the church is obviously teaching a false gospel, has major problems, if, if they're holding on to the gospel, I'm going to tell them, you know, God's given you this pastor, work out whatever that tradition is teaching you, even if I disagree. Yeah. And um, let me, and, let Go ahead. Well, let me say that um, I mentioned the Protestant problem. The glory of Protestantism is that you've got people from different traditions who affirm Scripture alone as the supreme authority and who, I think, more or less hold to this idea, uh, at least in theory, if not in practice, but I think in practice too, uh, always reforming. That is, always being willing to be reformed by Scripture. And that means we need to listen to each other's reading and um you know, look at the grammar of the text and the context and work hard to get it right. But just one more point, if I may, about the importance of believing with the whole church, the Catholic church. Uh, just this week, I, I met two disciples of a movement that I didn't know about before, but they're called the Church of God. And they wanted to convince me that there's Father God and a Mother God. And they were very quick to go to many texts, jumping around from the Old to the New Testament. And I was very saddened by the encounter, especially for the younger of the two, because he was so passionate. And I did have to sort of say some things that were what the reformers said. And I said, look, we disagree. I have to tell you, your group is a very splinter group. Most Christians would disagree with this. But I would encourage you, when you're reading the scripture, Read the more difficult and obscure parts in light of the parts that are most clear. That's a, just a fundamental Reformation principle. But uh, when, it, when you don't use it, things can go badly wrong. Dr. Van Hooser, you're a writer with a voice. I, I hear you speaking when I read your texts, and I'm thinking of your texts while I hear you speaking. Hmm. Here's a classic Van Hooser line in my opinion. To make disciples, we have to wake disciples, wake them to the metaphors and myths of which secular culture is an expert purveyor. If I am a Christian, this is me talking here, who in some notional way recognizes that biblical literacy would be good to have, but I find in my heart I don't really want it. If I know I'm not awake, what do I do to awaken that internal desire? Uh, that's another great question, and I, I see the challenge. I'm reminded of, we, you know, we mentioned Milton earlier, in Paradise Lost, Satan says, according to Milton, that he'd rather reign in heaven than serve on earth. 
And I think that's because he actually prefers the lie to the truth. And so I'm reminded of um, the similarity between Satan and the hero in the Matrix films. If you were plugged into a computer simulation where you could do and have everything you wanted and knew you were plugged in, and if you were given a choice to wake up, would you take the blue pill and stay in dreamland, blissfully ignorant, or the red pill, which would open your eyes to what may be a harsh reality, that what you thought was reality was only an illusion. And uh, I, I do think that many people, including some nominal Christians, are indeed uh, sleepwalking their way through life and would prefer the dream. And to those people, I want to say, get real. Because closing your eyes and keeping them closed to the truth, that's simply inauthentic. And in our day, I know reality is up for grabs. But what impresses me as a Christian is that down through the centuries, there have been witnesses and martyrs who have staked their lives uh, on its truth, on its reality, on the reliability of the story. And I believe firmly that when reality is the topic, Christians should never back, back down. So I want to I paraphrase what Satan says. I want to say better to get real on earth than to dream of heaven. We're mortal, you know, and we only have a bit of time on this earth. And I want to use my time to make a difference, and I need to get real. And the Bible's the best clue and gives us the most profound insight into the nature of ultimate reality. So Jesus, you know, tells stories to wake people up. And he also told that little story that compared foolish people to those who hear his word but fail to put it into practice. And I think hearing stories like that and appealing to, you know, the desire for authenticity and to get real. You know, the Bible should enchant our imaginations and it should prompt people to respond to its story the way the Samaritan woman did to Jesus. Uh, she said, sir, where, where can I get this living water? Give me this water. And that's what scripture is. It's, it's, our, it's, uh, it's what gives us the access to living water. And I think we need to appeal to people's imaginations, the, the whole being, not just a, an intellectual argument, not just a, a gimmick. We need to help them get real. The Bible answers the most pressing challenges of life. When you quoted the woman at the well, give me this living water, I must say, very personally, my heart leapt. I want this. I hunger and thirst for right. righteousness, and I know right. I find it in the Bible. And I think that Christian bookstores need to start putting red pills with every single copy of the Bible <laughs> that they sell. <laughs> yes. Now, I have a final question for you, Dr. Van Hooser. Okay. I really appreciate your time. I've given a lot of thought to hermeneutics and to the moral responsibility we have to interpret the Bible rightly, which which the Bible, um, what's the word I want, gauges to your responsibility level in the church. So James 3, 1, uh, my brethren, gotta quote the King James, sorry, it's what's in my head and heart. My brethren, be not many masters, that is not many of you should be teachers because you will be judged with a greater condemnation. So I, I wanna ask one more question based on a famous vignette from Lewis that I'm gonna assume you've encountered at some point in The Great Divorce, which is one of my favorite little Lewis books, which is, there are so many of them, but this is one of them. Um, there is There are actually two Anglican clerics, one of whom was the extremely liberal kind who actually denied the resurrection and fundamental Christian doctrine, the other of whom had done that, but had come to truly Protestant evangelical faith and was in heaven. Okay, so in the conceit of this book, as you know, and maybe our listeners don't, um, there is a visitor. Uh, visitors come up from hell, basically, to meet people in heaven, and, you, and Lewis uses this as an opportunity to um, sort of crystallize evangelistic encounters, people's encounters with the truth, and whether they accept it or reject it. And the, the liberal cleric's defense of himself was that all of his opinions were honest. How could he therefore be blamed for denying the resurrection when he was just following, he said, the best lights he was given. Lewis's point, I think, is that not all opinions, theological opinions and readings of the Bible are honest. How do you discern between those individuals who are 
who do have epistemic sincerity, and those um, splinter groups, even you know heretical groups, historically speaking, like the group you just yes, described, yes. who are going far beyond the tradition, and actually to the point that I think they'd be dis- described by Galatians one eight. You know, they're preaching another gospel, mm-hmm. and Paul issues an anathema on them. How do you know when someone is epistemically sincere? Yeah, and when they're being dishonest, suppressing the truth, and holding on to the blue pill. Yeah, I love the question. It reminds me of Jonathan Edwards' quest to come up with criteria with which to determine whether religious feelings were sincere and honest. And religious affections, yeah. yeah. So I think it's a very uh, similar question. It's asking about criteria, and criteriological questions are always the most challenging because you not only have to formulate the criteria, you have to use them correctly. And so my answer is may dismay you. I mean, I think there are criteria, but... It takes, it takes people of mature judgment to use the criteria rightly. Um, but one of the criterion would be, I think as for Edwards on the religious affections, is, is this person growing in Christ-likeness? Um, you know, are there evidence of the fruit of the Spirit? The other thing about honesty is, is there admission of weakness and, and ignorance? I'm so impressed by scriptures in part because the authors do not try to paint their particular interpretive community, either Israel or the church, uh, with a lot of cosmetic touches as if everything were rosy. On the contrary, again and again and again, we're told that the kings of Israel disobeyed the word of the Lord. They did not walk according to his word. And in the New Testament, the disciples are depicted as failing to understand Jesus. And even Peter, and we know what kind of reputation he acquired in church history, but even Peter in the New Testament is portrayed more than once as failing spectacularly to understand Jesus' teaching. That, to me, is very honest. So I have time for theologians like Augustine, who, towards the end of his life, wrote a whole book uh, reviewing his writing and being very honest about where he had made a mistake. So I think one of the signs for honesty is, you know, uh, an acknowledgement that one is only mortal and human and that one has erred and that one is fallible. Uh, It's, I think, this cult that I was referring to earlier, I saw no admission of any weakness in their armor. You know, everything was kind of rock-solid certainty. They, and I, it's, a, it's a delusion, of course, but I didn't think they were getting real. I didn't think they were being honest because they were projecting a false certainty. You're offering several criteria, and obviously we could talk through the criteria all day because the fruits of the Spirit are representative and not exhaustive. The entire yes. Bible defines what uh, a good Christian, a good believing life is yes. like. Yeah, so I, I'm not going to press you to give me more answers to that question, but I really, really like what you just said. Uh, I would love to see people jumping into biblical literacy, both confident in what the Bible says clearly and humble about their own limitations as a reader that come both from finiteness and from fallenness, and yes, the limitations of whatever interpretive tradition they find themselves in, that humility will get them far and will enable them to appreciate the gifts that God has given to other Protestant traditions, other people who have insights that they haven't had. I, I like things like the Reforming Catholic Confession, and honestly, I love Bible translation, so I've written a lot on it. I like to see different denominations and evangelicalism coming together to produce these because it's a way of saying there really is a stable core yes. in this evangelical Protestant Reformation tradition um, that despite our differences on baptism and covenant versus dispensationalism, et cetera, we, we know we are united on what's most important. That That's encouraging to me as a Christian and as a Bible reader. Well, Dr. Van Hooser, thank you for all of your time and for sharing your gifts with Christ's body, his peculiar people, those of whom, the small subset of whom are going to listen to our discussion. I'm very grateful. Thank you. It was a pleasure and a privilege to be in your first season. 
It's time to begin the roundtable conversation, and let me quickly introduce our participants. Dr. Brannon Ellis is here. He is head of Lexham Press here at Faith Life, and please say hello in some kind of Georgia way. Hey, y'all. There you go. Thank you. And two fellow academic editors of mine here at Lexham, Dr. Derek Brown. I don't know what kind of hello you should say. Can you just try English? Yeah, I'm from the Northwest, so... I don't think we really have a thing. All right. It's just you you have the normative way of talking. And then Todd Haynes offering the Lutheran perspective at all times. Now, let's get serious because we're trying to help people achieve and promote biblical literacy. Although Kevin Van Hooser said literacy, which sounds more elegant. So I went with that in the podcast interview. I want to ask you guys. Uh, the same question I kind of asked him, um, but I think you'd have some interesting perspectives on this. Of what story are people in our nation apart, you know, in the Western world, really? In other words, what what stories are we up against when we are trying to promote biblical literacy? I was recently back home for, for a wedding, and my brother and I were going to pick up things from the store. So he's yakking about all the frustrations that he has as a high school teacher. And he was saying that the biggest problem is there's no canon. There is no <laughs> unified story. So he's like, what do you do with formation of students? And he just said, this is kind of the continual thing that he beats his head against that, uh, you know, he's like, when I was growing up as a kid in the seventies and eighties, there weren't other options. So you could be frustrated with the story that your community told, but <laughs> good luck finding something else. So you try to rebel against it and you kind of come back. But today, I mean, from moving to the, for the Midwest out here to the Pacific Northwest, the story is different. And then you can even within our small town here in Bellingham, there are fragment of stories within that. So I think that's one of the biggest things that we're up against is a radical pluralism of unifying story. Yeah. The big story is uh, once upon a time, um, all stories are totalizing meta narratives or just trying to exercise power over other people. So <laughs> let's not have a big story. Uh, other thoughts on that? So, just as a framing kind of thing, I think this, you know, not so much like what is the big story, but a question of like, and to, to frame that question with something in, in, I think is going on in the background that ties into why biblical literacy is on the rocks, why I think it is. Um, it reminds me of uh, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, a early sort of prophet uh, philosopher of like, you know, the problems with the modern mindset. And one of the things he said that uh, about modernity, which also applies to post-modernity, which you could, you could see as kind of a heightening of modernity's, you know, particular eccentricities. Um, one of the, 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 the peculiarities of modernity, it's a revolutionary age, which as he called it, leaves everything standing, but cunningly empties it of significance. So what he meant was, you know, it doesn't, most of the time modernity isn't going as far as the French revolution and, you know, like, you know, beheading priests and worshiping the goddess reason in the streets and stuff like that. Most of the time people will not put up with something like that. But what more often happens is that you leave all of the structures and all of the sort of gingerbread in place, but you empty it all of its real significance and thus of its power. And so you, it's, it's hard to now, you know, like what, like um, we're, we're ironically today, we're in this kind of scenario where we're increasingly realizing how powerful stories and myths and legends and everything are and how, and, uh, and yet like, we're not you often in the in the church. We're not because of this, you know, being shaped by modernity's emptying of these stories of significance. We're not often aware of how, like, the Bible is actually the greatest story in terms of its, you know, the way it determines, you know, reality and the and its transformative power. Like we we don't really see it. You know, we we'll, we recognize it in other kinds of stories, but we don't really see it in our own story and in the Bible's story. So. You know, Lewis would, you know, call that kind of thing, like the Bible's the true myth. Yeah, I love that phrase. And so, you know, we, we don't really see it as powerful anymore. And so we, we, we don't see how the Bible's story really changes the world. So not only does our culture hit us with different stories, 
but also skepticism about all stories. It also lets us hold on to our Bible, sort of like a prisoner has the Bible on the shelf in his jail cell. Follow me here, but he's hollowed it out to stick a gun in there. He's got the symbol, but he doesn't have the reality more. I, I wonder if any of you have noticed the same thing I have, tried to connect the rise of the, the superhero movies, the Marvel movies. I'm not saying whether you should watch them or shouldn't, but connect them with the, the power of myth, okay, in our culture, why are they so popular? What does that say about the the stories that we're telling ourselves? No, it is interesting, but some of it has to do with when a story pulls it off and sometimes it doesn't. But with what Brandon was saying, it was making me think of that uh, Hans Boersma, Fear of the Word article. But one of the things that he talks about in there is he, he he's not okay with the word application. He, he gets upset about applying the Bible. C.S. Lewis has an analogy for this. Often the attitude towards the Bible is it's this carton that holds the cigarettes. The value of the cigarettes is, is the cigarettes, not the packet. So once I smoke all of the cigarettes, I throw away the packet. And I think we do that with the Bible, that instead of hearing the story, it's like, well, what's, what's the point for me? What's the application? What's the proposition? Which is something that Van Hooser has, he's trying to rediscover that remythologizing. Of, yes, there are propositions, but it's not just propositions. Your your job isn't to hear the Bible's story and go, yeah, but what does it all really mean, right? Like it's it means what it says, like and it's and you're and it's telling you about the way the world works and what matters and the kinds of things that you should care about. It's it's painting a portrait of reality. It's not saying, hey, there's some stuff that went on, but like it's you know I have to cipher it through my my grid of what I actually already think is important or significant or not significant. You know, it's, it ties in with like we as modern people, it's, it's, we're uncomfortable with, you know, we empty the, the Bible of its, you know, power and significance in, you know, in its big picture ways in the same way we do with little passages that make us uncomfortable for other reasons for the, you know, or for the same reason that we're modern, but there are different kinds of passages like, Oh, you know, the, the demon throws the boy in the fire and the water. And we're like, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with it. Huh? Must be epilepsy or something. We turn the page and we, we just, we, we do that without even thinking because it didn't fit through my grid of emptying it of its significance and power. Well, so the other side, what you were saying about the Marvel thing, uh, with, with some of these, I see more so, where uh, some of those stories, it's like, hey, we have this, I have this presupposition that I want to push on all of you. I have this big idea that I want to push. And then I'm just going to wield this story in the most wooden way possible so that you're like, oh, I get you're saying this thing. So we're circling around this saying we've just got to marinate ourselves so much in the story that it starts to reorder us rather than our starting to reorder it. And I, I want to draw this down to a practical question here. We have been getting pretty academic today and not every episode of the podcast is going to be like this. I already happen to know. Uh, but I think we're setting some foundations that will be helpful. So let me, however, get real practical. Step one, what do you tell someone to do? Given all that we've just listened to from Van Hooser, all that we're talking about, about marinating in the Bible story, what do you tell someone to do if he or she wants to achieve biblical literacy? First thing, I think it it signals to us the first thing or one of the first things you want to do. I've got two things. We just heard an interview with a systematic theologian about how to be marinated in the story of the Bible. I think that's that's a significant thing and it's counterintuitive to a lot of Christians today. I think the first thing you should do is realize that good theology promotes biblical literacy because it helps us with the motive for why we want to understand the Bible. It helps us with the how of going about understanding the story and the what it all means. If we want to understand, you know, like the understand the Bible and its story, then I think one of the things we need to really steep ourselves in is being committed to understanding good theology and why that's so inseparable from the Bible story. The second thing, briefly, is I love how Van Hooser basically told us, you know, hey, if we're someone who's figuring, you know, well, how do I understand the Bible? What about the plurality of interpretations out there? He basically said, look, pick a respected Orthodox tradition on purpose 
even if you end up being somewhat off base in the end, because that's much better than either going solo or running on autopilot. Yeah, and our culture would lean you toward the running on autopilot. So that was our theologian uh, on the round table. We've got a, another New Testament guy. Would you have a different advice, Derek, for someone who wants to achieve no, biblical literacy? Not different, um, but it made me think in a little bit different direction. Um, come, I'll come at it a little anecdotally <clears throat> for myself. Um, I grew up in a completely non-religious home and I wasn't anywhere. I, mean, I kind of went to church with a neighbor uh, my best friend lived across the street with his family too, an evangelical church growing up, but yeah, very seldom. And when you start reading the Bible, it's quite overwhelming when you haven't grown up around it. I remember being in Sunday school classes and then doing sword drills and, you know, they'd announce a verse and I, I had no clue where these things were. I didn't know what a chronicle was, let alone where I could find it in the Bible. And I used to just uh, flip around really fast because that's what everyone else was doing. Very <laughs> and <laughs> someone would win, hold up their Bible, and I would be like, ah, shoot, almost got at that one. <laughs> and um, I mean, I had better chance of being struck by lightning instead of a building than find <laughs> yeah. the passage. That's really um, good virtue signaling, though. And then yeah. they tricked you and said, turn to second Hezekiah. And you're like, look at and look in. Almost got it, guys. <laughs> um, and uh, that's a, a bit of a, a joking way to say this. It's quite overwhelming the thing that really got me going was a hunger. And so a lot of this is very cerebral talk about knowing things and reading a text, which is a wonderful gift and that we have accessibility to, but you have to have a hunger within yourself to not only have some knowledge and be acquainted and know the scriptures and what they teach and the story, which is all very good, but to, to know what it's doing inside your heart. And I think for, for me, it, it's, you have to sort of foster and find that hunger and understand why you're learning scripture, which is not just about to know and have a certain threshold of knowledge that you're no longer embarrassed to, you know, flip around the Bible when you're around your peers. But this is a bit of a circular way of saying this, but I think ultimately you can't love God or love neighbor without knowing the scriptures well. And those two things, it's impossible to do that without, without scripture. So biblical literacy is about, I think, uh, whatever tools you go about doing that with and what part of what tradition you're a part of, you find a good church home, as Van Hooser said, you have to find that hunger in there and yeah. to know why God has given us these scriptures. That was one of my questions for Dr. Van Hooser, and now I forget what he said. But I was hoping he would say what I like to say, and that is that the promise of the new covenant in the Bible is that God would give you a new heart. You know, ultimately, the love that you're talking about is a gift. Here's a non-Christian kid growing up across from an evangelical family. That's part of God's gift to you. And then 100%. he gives you this desire to go in and further gives you the desire to pursue him, this hunger and thirst for righteousness. And man, my heart leaps just like I told Van Hooser when I hear that story. Wonderful way to put that is, you know, it's about being known by God first and scripture is just sort of a, our entire lives is a response to that. And I, when I was a pastor of non-Christian people in an outreach ministry, I would tell them, pray for that heart, pray for desires you don't have and see what the Lord will do. I really loved hearing your story there, Derek. And we already have to kind of land this plane. So I want to, I want to, I want to come in with a hot take on my, the comic book thing. Though. Hot take. Well, I'm ready for it. I want to say that I think that they're mostly most conducive to very entertaining movies. That's my sort of dismissive take. I think that you've tapped into a general interest in stories, though. People do want to hear different narratives. And, it, because and they want heroes. They, definitely. I think that's a, a, a good point to take up. But I think people have gotten into a mode, not so much about which story, but they're just, it's almost like choose your own adventure. We've come to the point now where we got to have a story and everyone is looking for one, but they constant, they're almost disposable stories at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just kind of pull them out like a tissue out of a box. And if this one doesn't work, I go to the next one. And so we're, we just, we cycle through a lot of those. None have any, you know, ultimate authority or control and power over the other. And the good news of the Christian story is of this world's author also becoming its hero. Amen. The incarnation, the center of the Christian story. So let us land the plane with some hot takes. I liked that one. Derek, yours is good. You get an A. Brandon and Todd, can you give me a little bit of your story just briefly about 
at the time when that desire that Derek talked about was awakened in you, and maybe that would be both instructive and encouraging to listeners who want to promote or achieve or both biblical literacy. Hmm. Man, that's not as exciting as Derek's. I'm just kind of that boring story that I always felt so embarrassed about that as a, as a kid, you know, they'd always, they'd bring in like, this man's killed 10 humans. He became a Christian and now he's an amazing guy. It was always that like, I really got to go do messed up stuff so that Whereas people- you were safe from a life of drinking your bottle. Like, yeah, that's right. Todd was in the dark <laughs> until he found Martin Luther. <laughs> that's basically, no, but uh, I just grew up as the kid that always went to church and I mean, my parents took me there and I knew that I had to go and I in general liked going. There were all sorts of weird things too. Um, growing up in the, I'm a guilty conscience. And so growing up in the brand of evangelicalism that I grew up in, it wasn't good for that. But um, so yeah, reading, reading the tradition, reading the, the communion of saints, that was something that really helped me see the story of the Bible. So that's, let me become full caricature myself and give you a Luther quote. Luther says that the history of histories is the Apostles' Creed. And so that story holds all of history from before time existed, when it was just God, to when God creates, to you know fall, to redemption, until the new heavens are made. It contains the, the Apostles' Creed, it, contains that entire thing, but it also contains our individual stories of our lifetimes, but even each day that this is something that goes on. And Van Hooser kind of gestured towards this, but that's where Luther will talk about, that's, that's the story that we read the Bible in. How does it fit in that way? And so that's, there are ways that it's explicitly fitting in. There are ways that it's signaling that. And uh, the other thing that was on my mind was when Van Hooser brought up the Lord's Prayer thy will be done. So the thing that's said about that in the tradition is that every day God creates, he only, God only creates ex nihilo. And so every day that's something that as Christians we ask, kill my desires, kill who I am so that I can become who I really am, which is Jesus. And that's our historical theologian's answer. And that provides a perspective that isn't common in evangelicalism, knowing what the small C Catholic tradition has said. I appreciate that, Todd. Now, Brandon. Thanks. I think I can tie it together in a more kind of, you know, small scale way, just from, just from personal experience. I would say, I think part of biblical literacy is not knowing a lot of things about the Bible and it's, and understanding its story only, but, you know, this ties in with the hunger thing is really growing over the course of life and all of its ups and downs in like making that sort of like chewing that and digesting it more and more. And my, my kind of example of that would be, you know, when I was going through, I went through cancer treatment the first half of all of last year, 2018. And, um, my kind of like I gravitated toward uh, Psalm 130 kind of at the beginning of these treatments uh, going through chemo and everything, you know, out of the depths, I cried to you, O Lord, etc. I, I probably like in my Bible reading during cancer treatments, it was probably Psalm 130 every single day for like months on end. And it didn't get old and it, it didn't feel stale. You know, it was like, it was just like going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into Psalm 130. And then sometimes it was like, you know, thinking about the whole Psalm. And sometimes it's thinking about like one word or phrase in the Psalm. But it was, it was partly because, you know, I'm kind of at this sort of weak kind of capacity level. And partly because I'm living Psalm 130 right now, you know, and it was just, it was, I think that's a part of biblical literacy that ties in not just the sort of the richness of the word, but the hunger, you know, there's never a time when we will, you know, for all everlasting, even in the new heavens, and new earth, we're never going to get to a time where we exhaust the riches of what it means to come to know more of God and to be known more deeply by God and therefore know, you know, ourselves and one another in, 
in that knowledge and in that communion. And so I feel like, you know, it, part of deepening in biblical or growing in biblical literacy is recognizing that it's a lifelong maturation process that we can, it's not just about the whole Bible. It's not just about knowing the parts of the whole, sometimes it's about just one little tiny piece of it that you have just savored for months on end. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. That is our prayer for the effect of the Bible Study Magazine podcast made by Faith Life, whose mission is to use technology to equip the church to grow in the light of the Bible. Thank you, Brandon, Derek, and Todd for coming on the BSM podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Support for the Bible Study Magazine podcast comes from Logos Bible Software. Start a better, deeper Bible study experience with Logos 8 Fundamentals. Explore scripture more thoroughly than you ever imagined with Factbook, an encyclopedia of biblical places, people, and events. Workflows that walk you step-by-step step through your Bible study. Notes and highlights. Powerful and integrated note-taking capabilities for insights, ideas, and questions available in your Logos digital library, and much more. Learn more about Logos 8 Fundamentals and how it will transform your Bible study at logos.com fundamentals. You've been listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast, and I would like to thank our producer, Kaylee Joyce, and our audio technicians, Brandon Van Beek and Jack Underwood. And I can't thank myself, but I am the host, Mark Ward. My own most recent book is Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. And there's even an accompanying entertaining, if I do say so myself, documentary, if you like that sort of thing, on the King James Version that you can watch with a free trial to Faith Life TV. And I mention all of this not to promote my work, but because of one last important point I feel compelled to make as we close. Dr. Van Hooser's initials are KJV.